0: If are listening to the book of Hebrews, chapter 3, Hebrews, chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 7 through 19, it's considering a very weighty passage of scripture, a passage of scripture that deals with the unbelief of the apostate. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. Give attention to God's holy word. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my work forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and have not known my way. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be any uh, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. We have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief and strength. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for fulfilling your word through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that the offer of your word, the Holy Spirit, is now given to us in his name. And so we pray now that as we... Enter into this time of the preaching of your word that your spirit would be upon us, that you might see and hear, that our hearts would be tender to your word, even as this very passage joins us. And we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, perhaps you uh, have been driving, and uh, perhaps you've been driving at the end of a long trip. I have several times, and. Uh, what you sometimes find as you drive at the end of a long road trip is you begin to get a little sleepy, And as your head perhaps starts to nod a little bit, perhaps your spouse is in the car with you, and perhaps he or she is a little bit more alert than you are at that point. And perhaps as you're driving, your, your head begins to nod, and you begin to veer to the edge of the road, or perhaps into oncoming traffic, and your spouse, because they love you, will raise their voice and say, honey, wake up. Now, this has happened to me in the car more than once, and sometimes we react with a little bit of anger. Sometimes we respond to the volume of the voice, to the warning with a little bit of frustration. How dare you? I have been driving long enough to know how to drive. And we react to the strength of the warning until we realize what's actually going on. I almost did hit the telephone pole. I almost tried swiped that car. I almost hit the oncoming semi. So a lot of times when we are warned, when people come to us with a warning for our good, Our initial response is a reaction to the volume and the intensity of the warning. But once we realize the situation, we praise that person. Thank you for shouting at me. Thank you for raising your voice and getting my attention, because this could have ended badly. This could have ended horribly. Well, just like in driving on the road, also in the Christian life, the Lord sends warnings to his people. The Lord will often, throughout the scriptures, warn his people. And these passages of warning are sometimes misunderstood in the same way that my dear wife's volume is misunderstood. Sometimes we come to these warning passages, which this is one of many in the book of Hebrews, and because of the intensity as it were, the volume of the Holy Spirit in this passage, we can be tempted to react against it, to to respond and say, well, I have been a Christian long enough, I know how to drive on the pathway to heaven. But we need to recognize that just as my wife needed to raise her voice to get my attention for my salvation, sometimes the Lord has to raise his voice in order to get our attention so that we can course correct, so that we can avoid the unbelief of the apostate. And that's really what this passage is warning us about here. This passage warns us of apostasy, which is, as it says in verse 12, departing from the living God, going away from Jesus Christ and the Father, and the Holy Spirit. It warns us about this grave danger, but it warns us by describing the reason people apostatize, the reason that people depart from the living God is because of unbelief. What this passage is teaching us is that it is the unbelief of the apostate which leads them away from the living God. It is an unbelieving heart that causes people to depart from God and nothing else. And he does this for us in three ways. There are three things he shows us in this passage. The first is the root of unbelief, the remedy for unbelief, and the result of unbelief. The root of unbelief the remedy for unbelief, and the result of unbelief. Verses 7 through 11 describe the root of unbelief. Verses 12 through 15 are the remedy for unbelief. And verses 16 through 19 are the result of unbelief. 7 through 11 is the root of unbelief. 12 through 15 is the remedy for unbelief. And verses 16 through 19 is the result of unbelief. And for those that are fleshing that are it out a little bit, I'll give you a little bit more into those points. The root of unbelief is resisting the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. The root of unbelief is resisting the Holy Spirit in the Word of God. The remedy for unbelief is the power of the Spirit in the body of Christ. The remedy of unbelief is the power of the Spirit in the body of Christ. And the result of unbelief is separation from God. The root, the remedy, and the result. One more piece of preface before we get into this passage. We, uh, at least, uh, myself and, and the elders, have to say very confidently, are all Westminster Confession uh, Presbyterians. I trust that many here also adhere to and appreciate the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is another way of saying that we're just simple Calvinists. We try to take the Bible or what it says, at face value. And one of the things that the Bible teaches is that God elects unto salvation those that are saved are kept by His power. All of those for whom Christ died can never fall away from the faith. Amen and amen. One of the things, however, that we need to be careful of, especially as Calvinists, especially as Presbyterians. In proclaiming the truth of God's first cause, of, of His decree as the ultimate cause of whatsoever comes to pass, we need to be careful that we don't hold that truth and ignore secondary causes. Secondary causes causes are the things that God uses to bring his decrees to pass. Here's an illustration. God decreed that the Lord Jesus Christ would die for sin. Praise the Lord for his grace. But in decreeing the death of his son, he also ordained all of the things that led up to that point, the marriage of Joseph and Mary. The flight to Egypt, the hatred of the Jews, the fact that the Romans used this form of crucifixion to execute. All of those things had to be in place for God's ultimate decree to come to pass. Now why is this important here? Because what we're going to look at is a diagnosis of apostasy. Why do people apostatize? The temptation for us is going to be to look at this passage and say, well, if people depart from the faith, it's because they weren't elect. That's the temptation. If people leave the faith of Christ, it's because they were not elect. Now, that is true. However, we need to pay attention to how people depart. People don't just wake up in the church and one day say, I hate the living God. I'm walking away from all of this. It doesn't happen that way. The way that it happens is, first, this root begins to take hold of the heart, and it does two things. Look at what the author says in verses 7 through 11. The root of unbelief produces a hard heart towards God or a heart that rejects the Word of God in favor of its own Word. It rejects the Word of God in favor of its own Word. It rejects the wisdom of God in favor of its own wisdom. It rejects the truth of God in favor of its own truth. And it begins by resisting the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 7, the author says to us, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, a very important thing to be reminded and encouraged of, brothers and sisters. On the one hand, when we look at the scriptures, we are reading the words of men. My opinion, it's it's debated, but my opinion is that the book of Hebrews was written by Paul. Maybe that's not true, maybe it is. We know that the other letters were written by Paul, Romans, Corinthians, Ephesians. So when you read those letters, you are reading the words of Paul. But ultimately, The one that we are reading about, the one that is speaking to us, is the Holy Spirit. It is the living God who speaks to us through the Scriptures. These are His words. So when you read the Scriptures, you're not just reading the words of Paul. You're not just reading the words of John. You're not just reading the words of Peter. You're reading the words of the Holy Spirit. You're reading the words of that Creator Spirit who was at the beginning causing everything to come to life. You are reading the words of the Holy Spirit when you read the Scriptures. Now, on the one hand, we need to be reminded of this because we live in a day where this is conveniently ignored sometimes, especially when it comes to uh, discussions of human sexuality. I don't know if any of you paid much attention to uh, the recent General Assembly in the Presbyterian Church in America. They recently had their assembly and they were debating the question of a a, a perverse sin uh, being allowed in the ministry of their church. And to the glory of God, a faithful old minister, Palmer Robertson, got up to the mic, and began arguing and persuading the body, we need to pass this, we need to um, do this thing that would prevent this sin. And he did it by reading Romans chapter one, where Paul the apostle speaks about that particular sin. Now the reason I'm highlighting this is because many respond to that, and they'll say, well, Paul was a first century Jew who lived in the Roman Empire. That's Paul's opinion. Many will say that Paul um, had hard views of women. That's what Paul thought. Or they'll say things about John in the same light. You've heard this kind of reasoning before. When people want to get away from the scriptures and away from what they mean, they begin speaking this way. And we need to be reminded that, no, that's not Paul's opinion about homosexuality. That's the Holy Spirit's opinion about homosexuality. That's what God says about these things because the Scriptures are the words of the Holy Spirit. So the author begins at this point and he, he quotes uh, Psalm 95, which is a psalm of David. He quotes it by saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart." As in the rebellion. Now, one of the first things that the author describes for us here is the the root of unbelief. And notice, there's two things at this point. First off, unbelief—this kind of unbelief—is not ordinary sinfulness. It, it's not the run-of-the-mill sort of sinfulness that we all are sort of struggling with and fighting against and trying to mortify. It's not the, the, uh, perhaps, uncontrolled temper that might fly off in a moment of weakness or when your spouse warns you about the semi. That's not what he's describing here. What he is describing is a conscious and aware rejection of the Word of God. This is a conscious, knowledgeable rejection of God's Word, His promises, and His commands. Notice what he says. If you will hear His voice, another way to to describe this is, if you have heard His voice, if the Word of God has come to you, and it has by the power of the Spirit persuaded you that it is the Word of God, do not harden your heart." Now he cites uh, two Old Testament episodes. One is found in the book of Exodus, but I think the more central one is the one found in the book of Numbers, chapter fourteen. Numbers, chapter fourteen. That's what the references are in this passage. When he says rebellion, trial in the wilderness, your fathers tested me; they saw my work forty years. He describes what happens in the book of Numbers. In the book of Numbers, Israel was on the borders of Canaan. They were getting ready to conquer the promised land. And the 12 spies came back, and 10 of the spies gave an evil report. The report that they gave to the nation was that there's giants in the land. We can't do this. They're stronger than us. We need to back off. This is a death sentence. This is a suicide mission to try and go into this place. But Caleb and Joshua gave the people an encouraging report. They told the people that, look, if God has promised us this, their defense has departed from them. If God has given this to us, there's nothing that can keep us from conquering this, no matter how big these giants are. No matter how impressive their armaments are. We can do it because of God's promise. This happened in Numbers 14. The people then chose to reject the testimony of Joshua and Caleb, and they chose to follow the, the report of the ten wicked spies, the ten spies who discouraged the people. Now understand what was happening in that episode, because that's what the author refers to in this passage. What is happening in that episode is that God, at this point in the story, on the borderlands of Canaan, all of the promises of the book of Genesis, all of the miracles and the mighty wonders of Egypt, the building of the tabernacle and the Shekinah glory in the midst of the congregation, all of this stuff is, uh, is, is coming together. And God's covenant promise to Abraham is, as it were, nine and a half months pregnant, ready to birth with the fulfillment that he promised to Abraham, right on the edge. And then the people say, no, we don't, we don't believe God. His word is not trustworthy. We're not going to believe his promise that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob nor are we going to obey his command, go and conquer the land. You see, there's, there's two sides to their hardening of heart. They have rejected what God promised and convicted them to do. So the first thing is that their hearts are hardened towards God's word. But secondly, notice in verse 10, they favor their own words or their own wisdom in opposition to God's word. Look at what he says. Verse 10, the Lord says, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. You see, the heart of unbelief, this heart that apostatizes from God, rejects what God says, but also in their own heart follows their own wandering impulses. They're always going astray in their thoughts. They're always wandering off into the ditch. They're always falling asleep at the wheel and hitting the telephone pole. And then God takes them out of the ditch, puts them back on the road, and they do it again, immediately, into the next telephone pole. That's what he's describing here. A couple of things to notice first off. One... The Old Testament, just like the New Testament, is a religion of the heart. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant are both directed at the heart of man. The Old Covenant had more outward ceremonies and more outward sacrifices, but it was still focused on the heart of men. Israel had to believe God. Israel had to be submitted to God. They had to obey God. They had to have a tender heart towards God and follow Him fully. Even as Caleb is described in Numbers 14. The Old Testament economy was not an external religion and our religion today is not merely an external religion. We need to take this to heart, brothers and sisters, because... Many will fall into the temptation of thinking if I am outwardly a Christian. If I outwardly do the things that God has told me to do. Go to church, read my Bible, pray with my family. Don't, uh, don't uh, dance, drink, or chew. Or go with girls that do. If I do all of these outward things, We can fall into thinking that, I know how to drive. I've been doing this long enough. I don't need you to warn me. I don't need God to raise His voice and to convict my heart. And so the root of apostasy is this unbelief. It's this hard-heartedness. In verse 11, the Lord finally says to them, or about them in Psalm 95. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my wrath. Well, we've seen the root of apostasy. I want to apply this to help us in our thinking. You know, I remember one time somebody was was asking me, um, we were talking about the Christian martyrs all the details of the conversation, but it was something to the effect of like, wow, wouldn't it be would it be great to die for Christ? Wouldn't it be great to be a martyr for Jesus? Like uh, I think it was Polycarp. In in the Roman arena. The Romans were saying, um, uh, deny your God, confess that you're an atheist. Now for the Romans, an atheist meant you didn't believe in the Roman God. So Christians were atheists in the Roman from the Roman's point of view. You know, confess that, that you're an atheist. And this old man probably thought, look up the crowd and he says, uh, death to the atheists, or so woe to the atheists, and he pointed all the Romans. Because they didn't believe in Christ. They didn't believe in the true God. Wouldn't it be great to be a martyr, have that kind of faith? And as we are talking about this, we, we came to the conclusion that, yeah, it would be great to be a martyr. But I need to learn how to give up my time to read the Bible. I can't even give up 10 minutes to pray earnestly, and I'm going to die for Jesus in the Roman Coliseum. The point here is that as we look at these big, deep examples and principles, number 14, the nation of Israel fails to enter the land of Canaan. Wow, big picture stuff. The same dynamic is at work in your heart in your day-to-day life. The same dynamic plays out when, for instance, you need to forgive your ex-wife, Or when, for instance, you need to discipline your child. Or when, for instance, you need to go apologize to someone. There are these small little daily battles that we face where God's Word convicts us and our temptation is to be hardened. I'm not going to enter the promised land. I'm not going to say I was wrong to her. I'm not going to pray for my children. I'm not going to share the gospel with that person. I'm not going to tell the truth in this situation. You see how this plays out? You see how these tiny little daily battles we have to fight that follow this same pattern. So test yourself. Watch yourself for this hardness of heart. Don't follow your own understanding. We often uh, will follow our own understanding, won't we, go astray in our hearts. Say, well, I know this is true, and if I do this, this will be the result. That's the result that I want, so I'm gonna do this. That's following your own understanding. That's going astray in your own heart. When the Lord may simply be telling you, maybe you need to be quiet for a little while. Maybe you need to speak. Maybe you need to confront. Maybe you need to comfort. Maybe you need to confess. It could be any one of these things that the Word of God teaches us. So watch your own heart in your daily life. Because that attitude, resisting God's Word, I will not repent. Even if it's over stealing your sister's cookies. That will develop and grow into full-blown apostasy. Apostasy does not happen overnight. It happens through a slow process of this root growing and developing in you. Well, what's the remedy for unbelief and apostasy? What's the remedy? Well, the author then goes on and tells us the remedy. And the remedy is the power of the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. Look first off what he says. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Notice first off how he characterizes the heart of unbelief. You know, we we live in a very sophisticated age. We live in a very philosophical age. We have all kinds of books, I could show you some on my shelf about why uh, Christianity is true and these long philosophical discussions. And and we, we can be tempted in our country to think, well if somebody doesn't believe the gospel, they're just intellect they're being intellectually honest. They're, they're just, they just have questions. They're not sure about these things. If, if somebody departs from the faith, you see this now in our day, it's, it's called the deconstruction movement. Have you, have you heard of this movement in the evangelical world? A lot of young people are deconstructing their faith. They're, they're going brick by brick and, and pulling down the things they were taught by their parents, the things they were taught by their pastors, and they're deconstructing their Christianity. And many times they have an excuse Of, I was done wrong by the church in some way. I was offended by the church in some way. And so we're supposed to give them a pass. We're supposed to say this is understandable. This unbelief and departing from the faith is not evil. But notice what the author of Hebrews says. An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. The heart that departs from what they were taught. Now remember what's going on. This is somebody who knows the truth of the gospel. They have been given the word of God. They at one point accepted the word of God. And they've been persuaded it's the word of God. This is not your ordinary questioner or your ordinary sinner. This is somebody who has been given the truth. And they've rejected it self-consciously. Wickedness in the sight of God evil to reject the gospel of God's love. Now he tells you, brethren, beware, lest anyone among you has this evil heart. Be looking out for one another, not from a standpoint of judging, as we sometimes do from the back seat. We sometimes look across the pew that. Ooh, they are on a bad path. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, like this tax collector. We we sometimes look at one another that way. What he's saying is, is, beware, watch out for one another, and then do what? Verse 13, but exhort one another daily, while it is called today. Now this word, verse 13, is one of my favorite words in the New Testament, it's Translated here, exhort. It can also be translated encourage. This is the word, paraclete. The word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in John, uh, John uh, 16, is called the capital P, paraclete. He is the capital C, comforter. He's the capital E, encourager. The Holy Spirit is the one who does this work. He's characterized as the one that does this. God the Father ordains salvation. God the Son executes salvation. And God the Holy Spirit encourages you along the way in salvation. Now, notice what the author is telling you, the body of Christ. You paraclete one another. You encourage one another. You exhort one another while it is called today. You become a participant in the work of the Holy Spirit. You, seeing a brother or sister that's wandering, can come alongside them and say, Hey, what's going on? How can I pray for you? God is good, isn't He? Reminding and encouraging them of of God's promises. This is turn to Numbers 14. This is exactly what Caleb and Joshua did in the wilderness. Caleb and Joshua in Numbers 146, Numbers 14, verse 6, do this kind of encouraging, this kind of paracleting with the nation of Israel. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the the son of uh, Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, The land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land to give us a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Notice how they're encouraging the congregation with God's promises. God has given us this land. They're also very confident in the promises. Sometimes this language is lost on us a little bit. Notice he says that they are our bread. We're going to eat the Canaanites for breakfast. That's what they're saying. God's promises are so great that whatever enemy you are facing, he will overcome it. You will crush it under your feet like the serpent under Christ's feet. So they're encouraging the bar. They're, They're exhorting the nation because they could tell they were about to depart. This, ultimately, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who accomplishes this work. The way that I want to encourage you is that you have a great opportunity here to be good to one another. Sometimes, I think we, we, we miss these opportunities as the body of Christ to be a vehicle of the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes when we see the need of exhortation, we see that somebody needs encouragement, we may think, well, that's the pastor's job, or that's the elder's job, or that's some other mature Christian's job to to encourage that person. It's not my job. Well, certainly not my job. I, I cannot do this kind of encouragement. I don't know the word of God well enough be encouraged, it's the Holy Spirit through you. It's the Holy Spirit using you as a member of the body of Christ to preserve the body of Christ. But we also need to be aware of the opposite sin. If we are encouraged to encourage, if we are exhorted to exhort one another, there's an opposite Uh, sort of vice that we can fall into which prevents us from doing it. Turn to Leviticus nineteen. Leviticus nineteen verse fifteen. Hebrews is encouraging us to encourage the 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 other, the the opposite thing to this is gossiping. You see, sometimes when we see people that need to be encouraged, that need to be exhorted in the faith, sometimes our default, our response is to gossip about them. And unfortunately, many times we do this by way of prayer request. You know, Pastor, I really need to pray for my wife. She is very disrespectful. An illustration. Not saying anything about my wife. Don't read more into that than needs to be into it. But we've we've heard these kind of prayer requests. Perhaps we've made these kind of prayer requests before. You know, uh, brother, I'm just really concerned about so and so. Did you know? Did you hear what he did the other day? So we go to the Look at uh, Leviticus 19:15. Says so first off, he said, "Do no injustice or judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor." nor honor the person of the mighty, in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. Now what this little section we're going to look at deals with, deals with unity of the body and how we're to relate to one another. The author of Hebrews has said, beware lest anybody have this evil heart of unbelief. The author of Leviticus says, you shall judge your neighbor in righteousness. Don't despise the poor and don't give a pass to the mighty. We sometimes do that as well, don't we? Well, he's an officer in the church. He must be doing things right. to give a pass. He says, judge your neighbor with righteousness. Continue reading. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Notice what the Lord is saying here. Gossiping about somebody, being a talebearer, is morally equivalent to testifying against somebody's life. Being a gossip is morally equivalent to the false witnesses that stood up at the Sanhedrin and said about Christ, he spoke ill of the temple. That testimony was used as the excuse to execute Christ. That's what Moses is saying here. When you gossip, that's what you're doing. You're becoming a false witness against somebody's life. But now notice the opposite. Keep reading. Verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and shall not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Here is the point. The best way to love your brothers and sisters in Christ is to speak to them about the things of Christ. Exhort one another daily. Confront them if they need to be confronted. This is how you love your neighbor in your heart. This is how you love your neighbor as yourself. And pray that if you need to confront, if you need to, as the author says, rebuke, maybe, pray that they would receive it in the spirit of love by which you send it. Make sure you do it for love. Make sure that you offer these corrections seeking their good. Seeking their salvation. Seeking what the author of Hebrews says, verse 14, that they might be truly partakers of Christ. The author, as he talks about the remedy for unbelief, he told us that the remedy is the Holy Spirit in the body of Christ. Correcting, exhorting, rebuking, encouraging one another. Communicating with one another about the things of God. But he now says here, for the purpose of maintaining our faith in Christ. You see, when we talk about the things of God, when we talk about the Bible, we need to talk about these for the purpose of encouraging one another in Christ. There may be a place for theological debate. There may be a place for interesting historical discussions. I love those kind of things. But primarily when we relate as brothers and sisters, we relate as those who are united to Christ. Verse 14 can sometimes be a hard verse. It says, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. The reason this can sound, uh, this can be rather difficult sometimes, it's a conditional. It says you are a part of Christ if you do this. If you hold fast firm to the end. Now remember what we're talking about, as I said at the beginning. Secondary causes. Those that are elect will cling to Christ. Those that belong to Christ will respond to the warnings and cling to Christ even tighter. You know, we sometimes think about our union with Christ like a gumball machine. Sometimes we think, okay, I have my faith quartered and I put it in the slot, and I pull down the promised lever, and I receive the gumball of salvation. And then we walk away having gotten what we wanted. Salvation in Christ is not like a gumball machine, where you put the coin in, pull the lever, get the thing, and then you're done. Salvation with Christ is, as Christ describes it, being grafted in, being united to Christ in a vital union. It is, as it were, an organ transplant, where the Lord takes you and implants you into the body of Christ, just like a new heart or a new kidney. Now you know there's a danger with grafting an organ transplant. It may not take. The body might reject that kidney. But the plant may not marry up with that branch that's been grafted into it and tied to the trunk. It may not work. For the ones that don't work, they are cut off and burned in the fire. So What the author of Hebrews is telling us here is that those branches which really are grafted to Christ will work. They will bear the fruit. They will abide in the trunk and draw sap and cling fast to the end. One of the ways that that happens is through mutual encouragement. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to give you just a practical challenge and application here. As you pray for one another in this body, as you pray about things you see in their lives, I also want you to think and in fact try to develop a relationship with somebody in this body that you don't have a close relationship with. Call them, send them an email, send them a text. Develop a mutually encouraging relationship with them. Don't just pray for them. Tell them that you're praying for them. Don't just notice their sins. Take those sins to the Lord and confront them, maybe. Encourage them. Maybe sympathize with them. Like, hey, brother, I've been there. I know what that's like. I know what you're going through. I want to encourage you to do those kind of things just as this passage encourages us. Finally, as we look at this passage, we are told about the result of unbelief. This uh, passage, verses uh, 16 through 19, the subpoint in our sermon serves as a transition into the next part of the book of Hebrews, which speaks about the promise, the, the promise of wrath. In verse 11, he, quotes, he finishes his quote of Psalm 95 and says, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter. My rest. Now, in verse sixteen through nineteen, he begins to unfold this idea and talk about the result of this of uh, uh, this unbelief. He says, "For who, having heard, rebelled?" Notice what I said. This is really a summary section of this whole passage. It's the people that heard the word of God who rebelled against it. This is not an ordinary sinner. This is not just an ordinary Egyptian who knows nothing of Jehovah. These are Israelites who heard the words of Moses that have rebelled. Indeed, was it not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? The author goes on to describe more fully that every one of the people who died in the wilderness were circumcised members of Israel. They had followed Moses out of Egypt. They were baptized members of the visible church in good standing. But their hearts were not right. They all died. Now verse 17, who was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. The author has described for us what unbelief produces. A hard heart, a heart that departs from the living God, now he describes the result of unbelief, and the result of unbelief is separation from God for all eternity. In Psalm 95 and in uh, Numbers chapter 14, the rest, that the Israelites are prevented from, was entering the land of Canaan. Now, entering the land of Canaan was a height of our eternal wrath. It was a foreshadowing of what life for all eternity will be. Dwelling in God's presence, enjoying His wrath for all eternity. So for the Israelites, to be told they cannot enter my rest, it means, ultimately, they will end up in hell forever. Likewise here for us, not entering into God's rest means you are cut off from God for all eternity. And so the author warns us. The the author, as it were, is is, uh, sitting in the passenger seat. The Holy Spirit is right alongside of us saying, watch out if your heart is hardened. The freight train is coming down the track. And once that freight train hits you, once the wrath of God is revealed against you for your unbelief, there is no hope. But today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Look to the promises of God. Look to his mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to his promises. And look to his commands. For his commands are not burdensome, but his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Do not be stiff now, but follow him with a heart of faith, and he will save you. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word and for the Lord Jesus. And we pray that You would give us tender hearts before Your Word. Help us to walk in Your ways. Help us to be doubtful of our own hearts, but fully persuaded of Your Word. With the grace, we exhort one another daily that we all, as one body, might enter into Your eternal rest praising and rejoicing you for all eternity, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.